Welcome to Invincible Teams, a podcast for team leaders and business owners who are tired of dealing with office drama and politics, high turnover, and teams not meeting their potential. We know that team leaders and business owners like you are pretty much always under pressure to get the most out of your teams. And we also know that most teams only operate at about 58% of their actual potential, and we've got the tools and training to make that number keep going up. We believe that every team should reach their potential, and that if we get intentional, our teams can become invincible. Hey, welcome back to the Invincible Teams podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Mayfield. And, you know, I always get on here and say how excited I am to share uh, an interview with you. But today, I am just, I am so excited, probably more than anyone that I've had so far, because I just finished up speaking with Donald James. And Donald James is a 35 year uh, retired career person for NASA. Uh, and the conversation I got to have with him was just incredible. He's got a new book coming out soon called Manners Will Take You Where Brains and Money Won't. And it's incredible, uh, just the stories that he tells and the relevance for people today, both in their personal and professional lives, and how manners uh, really does make a big difference. And so I know I enjoyed this conversation so much, and I know that you will too. So I'm just going to stop talking. And let's get on to the interview with Donald James. Okay, Mr. Donald James, welcome to the Invincible Teams podcast. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you, Ryan. I'm great. Glad to be here. Well, I um, am not sure that I've ever been quite so excited to have a guest. Uh, I'm a little bit um, starstruck, you might say, at the moment, just because of who I was growing up, uh, just a, a big space NASA junkie. Uh, and for people that are listening in, why don't you just give a little introduction to yourself? Tell us who you are and and what you do and have done and, and just let people get to know you a bit. Well, thank you very much, Brian. Well, I'm, I'm a proud careerist from NASA, the space agency. I started right out of graduate school and I didn't plan to stay with NASA my whole career, but events in, during my time uh, convinced me that NASA was a great place to hang my hat. And so um, I spent 35 years there. I retired in 2017, and most of my career was in external programs. I would explain the work that NASA did. Um, I got into education because NASA invests a lot in education, and the purpose of that was we wanted to make sure that there were other young people who might have an interest in NASA to consider pursuing careers. And I had the great fortune of leading organizations that uh, did uh, uh, lead uh, activities for internships and uh, scholarships for students um, and other ways of getting students excited about the work that NASA did. And I found that so gratifying. There's nothing more gratifying than to see young people get turned on about the possibility of working in the space business and to realize that they can have a place. Um, I often like to remind students that every year NASA actually hires more people who aren't quote unquote STEM people, right? Scientists or engineers because uh, we have to have lawyers and accountants and education people and finance people and human resource people. And we actually hire more of those than we hire people who actually design spacecraft. So anybody can really be a part of the space program. And um, and it's really for the benefit of, of everyone. And so I, I've enjoyed that. Uh, all, and I still enjoy it, even though I'm retired now. I, I'm still very passionate about NASA and I can talk about it forever. So... That's, that's who I am, and I'm, I'm here to continue continue that work in any way that I can. Well, I, I love it, and I am appreciative of it because I have even been a recipient of it uh, many, many times. Really? Over. I was um, probably people listening may not know this, but I uh, did a lot of space and aeronautics-related things growing up, uh, if you're familiar with uh, the Cosmosphere uh, in, yes. in Hutchison and yes. uh, the Tulsa Air and Space Museum. Uh, went went to camps at those, uh, was a counselor at camps at those, have got to visit uh, Johnson down in uh, Texas and 
even got to see a shuttle launch uh, in Florida one time whenever I was younger. And so those are awesome, uh, right? It, it was incredible. Everybody was just pulled over on the side of the highway and we yeah. didn't realize why. <laughs> and yeah. so we looked up and saw the space shuttle. Yes. Uh, so yeah, as somebody who's been a recipient of the education stuff that NASA does, uh, I am grateful for it and excited to, to have you. Well, you're welcome. And I appreciate that. And we've NASA to this day still supports science centers all around the country. We have a big alliance where we try to help them out and you know, the whole goal is to connect people with their passions and interests within the domain of space exploration, whatever that is. And so um, I think it's cool. Yeah. Well, let me start uh, with a real hard question first. Okay? okay. So, you know, throughout your career, I know you have been a part of many different teams uh, that, you know, that you've played various roles mm-hmm. on. Which one would be your favorite and why? Uh, the team that I was on to produce an event at the center where I work. NASA has 10 field centers around the country and I work at the one in Silicon Valley called Ames Research Center, just like Ames, Iowa, but Ames. And we were asked to, um, or, or I was asked to join a colleague to do an open house event. And we had never done an open house event. And um, I write about this in the book that I know we're going to talk about. And, and the reason I do is because um, we were really concerned about making sure we had a lot of people come to the open house. And so it was really important for us to come together to figure out how to do something that we had never done before. And there's a lot I can say about that effort and that, in that team. But I think the thing that really when I reflect on it, Ryan, that I loved about it was we were doing something new and something different. We were kind of not making it up per se, but we were stretching ourselves in order to accomplish an objective. So the, the one of the biggest objective was to have a lot of people come because our NASA administrator, who was a real character, and we were really concerned that if we didn't have enough people, he would not be happy. And so we wanted to make sure we had a lot of people and we didn't know we were going to be able to do it. And so we really went all out and did a lot of different things because we had set a target of having 50,000 people come to our center. And like, mm. we want to make sure we, you know, we had met that objective. And so we did a lot of things and our, we, there was a, an experience that I had and I, I write about this where the administrator had come before this and uh, he, he had, a, he had um, some hot buttons and one of his hot buttons was, our agency's public affairs efforts. And he felt that we really weren't reaching non-traditional audiences and, and we weren't, it, you know, we were just talking to the choir all the time. And so we made a big effort to not do that. So I remember doing interviews at, at Chinese radio stations and I didn't speak Mandarin. <laughs> so I had to have a translator and I did one in Spanish wow. and we went to art and wine festivals and we went to where the people were. Well, the, the long and short of it is we, we to say the least, Ryan, we vastly exceeded our expectations because we had a quarter of a million people wow. and one day show up wow. to Ames Research Center. We had cars down the freeway. If people know the Silicon Valley area in California, Highway 101 runs right down through the the peninsula through Silicon Mm. Valley backed up for miles. We have the highway patrol calling us because they were so mad. We had people in the (laughs) cities of Mountain View and Sunnyvale. They were mad because cars were everywhere. And, and it, it it really exceeded our expectations. But when I think about how that was possible, it was possible because all of us were singularly focused on a goal and we were willing to suppress our egos. We weren't trying to outcompete each other. This wasn't about who's going to get the glory or whatever. You know, I was one of 38 people on this team and I didn't mm-hmm. have any bigger role. I co-led it with a colleague and we had other people involved, but it turned out to be, when I think back on my career, of the five most impactful things that I'm proud of, that one is probably in the top five. And to this day, there are people who went to that open house and never for, forgot it. There are, there are young people who got inspired to decide they were going to pursue 
STEM related careers. Mm. We know this. Um, mm. uh, and I will say just as a sort of a plug as to why events like this can make a difference. Uh, if people know the story of Steve Jobs uh, mm. and how he got excited about computers, if you read the biography of Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson, he says mm -hmm. that Steve's dad took him on a tour of NASA Ames Research Center where he mm. saw his first computer. And I, I had the privilege of meeting his widow, uh, Lorraine Powell Jobs, much later, and she verified that, that, you know, that was mm. one of the sparks. Wow. So just by exposing people to an environment like a NASA environment can have a transformative impact. And so I felt that I was part of something that was so much bigger than myself, that had a lasting impact. And I just felt so privileged that I could be a part of that. And that to me was just cool. So I, the open house, I think it was 1997. Wow. Oh, that, that's incredible. Um, man. And I love, you know, you're talking about suppressing egos and no one, you know, trying to outdo others and that's stuff that we talk about all the time. And so yeah. uh, that's yeah. really great to hear, hear you say that uh, about yeah. that team. Uh, let me just kind of take the ball a little bit further here and ask you this. What do you think it is that sets apart great teams, in your opinion? My view from my experience is that great teams are first and foremost driven by a common purpose or mission that is really cool and big. Like, you know, hmm. the, the you know, space missions or or trying to get a launch uh, going. I, I worked on one of NASA's space programs, the, the Orion spacecraft on a detail once. And, you know, we were all committed to getting this spacecraft mission started. Um, with NASA, in some ways, it, it may be easy because a lot of the projects that we have and the missions that we have are really first time <laughs> things, you know, like Curiosity landing on Mars. And mm -hmm. I mean, People haven't done that before. The engineering hasn't been done before. So people can get really excited about it. So uh, it's perhaps a little bit unfair um, because, <laughs> but having, having uh, you know, something big to work towards, you know, is, is really important. I, I think the other thing is having a leader who really cares about the people. I had one center director at Ames, once say, and I never forgot it, he said, if you take care of the people, they will take care of the mission. Hmm. And I never forgot that. And so as I grew up to be a leader, I always remembered that my number one job was taking care of the people. Now, what does that look like? That looks like that if you're in a team meeting and you're working on something and you know, you have a sense that there's something not right in the room, Right. Like I call it the pink elephant in the room. And as a leader, it's important to to address that. You may find out that you have a colleague who just lost a family member or, you know, their marriage is falling apart. And these are all true, by the way. These are all things right. that happened to me. You may find out and, and they might try to suppress it, but it's almost impossible really to suppress certain emotions. But that could impact the dynamics of a team. Um, so it's important for the leader to really care, take care of the team members and to figure out how to um, adjust what you need to adjust for the purpose, benefit of the mission. Uh, so I would say having a great mission and having an inspiring mission, one that is like super hard and like, you know, I don't know how we're going to do this to having a leader that really cares about the people so that he knows or she knows that they'll take care of the mission. Um, I also feel that always being curious and being in a learning mode is really important. I, I, I was always very curious and I learned later in my career that it was very helpful if I was just curious about myself and how I, how I work. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I learned that you know, I didn't do very well if I was running a meeting and everybody was on their iPhones or laptops. And, you know, sure. I came to appreciate that, well, some of them are taking notes or, you know, I probably am not going to stop that behavior. So I had to learn how to, how to adapt. But uh, if you're not willing to do that, then, you know, that could be challenging. So you as a leader might find yourself 
always at odds with people if they're not fitting into your strict view of how things should be done. So having some right. some kind of flexibility is was important. So I would just I would just start with those three. I'm not an expert in in teams. I, I I know from my experience and what little I've learned in school, but um, it's a constant work in progress, and I'm still curious about. You know, I've seen great teams happen with people who are mediocre. I mean, I mean, I'm not, what I'm gonna mean at disparaging about the people, but I mean, I don't think you can put ten geniuses in a room and have an awful team because they can't get along with each other, right? right? Sort of like bringing all-star basketball players on the same <laughs> team and then assuming they're all gonna play nice yeah. and they're all gonna have a great championship team. And we know that that's not always the case. So absolutely, you don't necessarily have to have all a star listed people on your team. Um, you just have to have people who are willing to learn and to adapt and, and to say, you know what, I may not know what to do, but I'm willing to learn how to do it and I'll do whatever it takes for the good of the cause. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I couldn't agree with, with that more. And for anybody that is a basketball fan, uh, you know, that that is very true. There's always teams that are trying to compile all the superstar talent. Um, and they almost always get, get worked over by the teams with, you know, less quote unquote talent and more teamwork and camaraderie. Right. Right. Um, right. So I, I love that, you know, a couple of things you said in there that I found really interesting that I want to just continue the conversation. On. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you mentioned having a, a big vision, an exciting thing. A, a, and, and I think you're right. Like working at NASA, maybe that's uh, comes naturally for the most part, right? These un, unconquered, unexplored frontiers. Uh, but I know that that's not always the case. That's what right. makes the headlines. Right. But, um, but I know that that's not, you know, a hundred percent of what NASA does. And so, you know, there's probably people who are listening who have, these huge, awesome, uh, exciting missions that they are trying to lead their teams towards. But what about the ones that don't feel like they have something like that, that feel like maybe what they're doing is something that a bunch of other people are already doing? How do they and how do teams like that get excited and still maintain a big vision, you know, energy without you know sending the next spacecraft to Jupiter or whatever it right. is? Right. Uh, that's an outstanding question. I My personal bias is that it's incumbent upon the leader of the team or the people who are trying to inspire a group to do something to appeal emotionally to the individuals uh, about something that's bigger than they are for a, a purpose. And I, I probably can't articulate this very well, but it's like the advertisers who do commercials, right? You know, you think they're trying to sell you soap, but if you look at the commercials, they're trying to emotionally capture you in a way that says, wow, I feel great. I mean, I'm going to go buy some soap or whatever it is, you know, because it, you're, you're buying an experience. You're not buying right. a car, right? So, so what is that story that Mm. you're telling your team that you're trying to connect them to it's like you know we you know we we tell the 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 janitors at nasa you're not picking up trash you're enabling an environment conducive to sending a man to the moon and back wow (laughs) right that's a different story than saying your job is to pick up trash so that's right. why back in the 60s, the janitors said their job, they asked them what their job is. My job is to help get a man of the moon. I thought you picked up trash. Yeah, I do. Well, how is that related to getting the man of the moon? Well, I have to make sure that the offices and environments are pristine so the people who are designing the spacecraft and working on the mission feel that they have an environment to do what they do best. I'll do what I do best and they can do what they do best. So how do you figure out what is it that you need to connect people to that's that's bigger than they are. And there's a story there. Otherwise, I mean, why did the people invent the company to make, you know, widgets? You know, they probably right. felt that they could make a better widget than the next guy. And, and why is that widget important? You know, you're making someone's life easier. Hmm. And so maybe what you're telling your people is uh, we're in the easy making business, right? Hmm. Even though you're making a widget. So yeah. that they feel that um, 
when their people go home, they have purpose and they have meaning in what they do uh, and that their work means something to them. And so as a leader, you got to figure out how do you connect what the actual work is to the meaning, a bigger picture meaning, so that the person is just dying to get to work. You know, they're panning at the door the next day to say, I'm creating, I'm making people's lives better by the work that I do, right? Yeah. I imagine there's some uh, technician who worked for Pfizer, whose job it was to mold the vials that holds the vaccine, who doesn't say my job is to make glass vials. He says, my job is to be a part of an effort to save the world mm. from this virus. Yeah. See, that's a different narrative, right? Yeah. So in my experience, in my view, you got to create that narrative and show how every individual is a part of that greater story and say, this is what you're doing yeah. and why. Well, and that's, gosh, I just find myself continually agreeing with everything. And I, you know, I've heard the, I've heard the janitor story before. Yeah. I've heard another one that maybe it's not even true. And, but if it's not, don't tell me, cause I love this story <laughs> is, uh, you know, that there's a guy at, um, uh, you know, that, that sweeps things off the runway for the shuttle or well, used to be when the shuttle program was there, you know, like sweeping alligators off the runway and stuff, uh, which I just think is so, so interesting. I mean, the teams that, that you worked with and that NASA has worked with historically, I'm, uh, have just been so diverse in what's required to do a, a job. And I say diverse, I think I mean complex, right? Yes. All the yeah. different yeah parts of a team. And of course, like we know there's famous names out there. If you go back through NASA history, right? There's tons of, of names that people might recognize. But what about, I, I'm curious if you know about the teams that they worked with, right? Because yeah. I know it wasn't just them, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so what do you think is the quality that team leaders or, or people that are building teams should look for uh, in people that's not you know, you're not looking for just those superstars. What is it that you look for in, in people as you're trying to build a team? Well, I appreciate that question, Ryan, because that's a perfect segue to the, my current work on my book on manners, because the short answer is I would rather hire somebody that has impeccable manners as I characterize and define it, which we can talk about versus the know-it-all who's, you know, straight A's out of MIT and knows everything and you can't teach her or him anything. And I've seen both. And the reason is that it's easier for me to teach you the technical skills you need to know to do the job that I'm asking you to do than for me to teach you how to have impeccable manners which I know is going to help or hinder your career, depending on which side of the ledger you're on. Um, and I tell stories about that. And I will tell you and your listeners, this is the truth. There are astronauts who have been hired as astronauts, who were trained as astronauts, who will never see the inside of a spacecraft in space. And I know the reason why. It's because they don't have good manners and it was mm. determined that they would not make good team members. And so they're stuck on the ground. I know wow. of an astronaut who flew exactly once hmm. and that person uh, never got to fly again. And now I know the reason why. It didn't have anything to do with his ability to fly a spacecraft or do the science experiments or anything like that. So I'm saying that that matters. And so when I look for people in teams, I'm looking for a suite of qualities that I'm calling manners. And I know that's a label and there's a lot into that. And people might be thinking of, you know, Victorian mores about etiquette and politeness. And that's not totally what I'm talking about. <laughs> But it's, um, I've seen it. I've seen it. I've seen it enough in my career to know that uh, I believe it's important. It's also how I was personally trained and what my mother taught me and what I learned through the zillions of hours of training I did. So I, I look for that in a team member, um, particularly somebody who's hungry to learn, who's, who's willing to, to be a little bit uncomfortable, um, 
who's willing to ask for help and support. I have a whole chapter in the book about the importance of teams. And um, it may not be the best metaphor because I don't mean a team like, you know, you get together at your house one night and they all are surround you and, you know, tell you what to do kind of thing. These could be people that, you know, it's asynchronous. They don't necessarily, you know, sure. they don't necessarily know each other, but they're people that you've invited into your life and you've asked them for support and, and that anything is fair game, particularly around your manners. And so um, that's, that's one way to learn how to improve in that area. And I've been fortunate that I've had people in my life who are at risk to our relationship, hmm. at risk to our personal relationship, was willing to share things with me that ended up having a profound impact on, on my growth, my personal growth. So that's, that's what I would look for. Um, Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I, I, again, just agree. I know I say uh, one of the things we talk about is to, to hire for character and train skill. Yeah. That's better Uh, said. That's well said. I'm going to steal uh, that one, Ryan. I got it. <laughs> hey, feel free. I'm Fire sure for I stole it from... Train skill. That's cool. I'm, I'm sure I stole you. it from someone else. So uh, <laughs> just quoted anonymous. How about that? But um, well, yeah, let's talk about the book. The book is called uh, Manners and it's Manners Will Take You Where Brains and Money Won't. And I yes. love the little ad on there that says wisdom from mama and 35 years at NASA. Yeah. Uh, yes. And I'm, I'm, excited about it. I've been able to read a little bit of it and have just loved uh, everything in it that I've read so far. I, some of the big takeaways, I'm pretty sure your um, mama was a phenomenal person. uh, And um, there's just so much good stuff in the book. And I feel like I've barely scratched the surface. So excited to talk about it here. But let me start by asking this. um, Why did you write this book? So it starts with a story. Summer after I retired, from NASA, I was asked to give a talk uh, at a NASA center where I worked to a group of our summer interns. Every summer we brought interns and and they said, why don't you come back? You know, I was had been the associate administrator for education. I managed all of NASA's education programs, including our intern programs. Why don't you come back and talk to the students about your career? You know, I was just retired. And uh, at the end of the talk, there was a Q&A session, and one young man said, uh, Mr. James, if, if you could go back and talk to your 25-year-old self, knowing what you know now, what would you tell him? And I said, that's a great question. And without hesitating, I said, you know, I would tell Donald, you really need to work on your manners because they're going to take you where your intelligence and brains, which was, you know, I was a B student and I wasn't an A student. And that's really important. I want the listeners to know I wasn't the top of my class. I wasn't the bottom of my class. I was good. I wasn't great. Um, I certainly didn't have any money. And besides, it doesn't matter if you work in NASA, if you have money or not, you're a government official. So you get what you get, right? (laughs) But I said, work on your manners. It's really going to matter. And then um, I said a few other things. And then just before I ended it, I said, oh, yeah, and one more thing. Uh, One day you're going to hear about these two companies called Apple and Google. You should buy a lot of stock in those. (laughs) So. They, 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 they cracked up at that. And, um, and so it was when I was talking to a neighbor a couple of months later, and we were talking about a variety of things. And, and I was sharing this story with him and why I thought it was important. And the na- I was literally standing next between, like the old cartoons where you're on the fence and your neighbors, because we don't have a fence, and neighbors talking mm-hmm. to each other. And I got worked up over this. And he said, man, Donald, you really ought to write a book about this. And I said, I looked at him. I said, you know what? I'm going to do just that. Wow. So the genesis started with the talk. And the catalyst to actually do it was my neighbor. And so the book really is a longer answer to that young man's question hmm. about, you know, what would I advise myself? If I, if I had that book when I was 25, I would be grateful. And that's what I hope to accomplish um, as difficult as it may be. So uh, I had no idea how challenging it was to write a book <laughs> and how long it was going to take. So anybody out there who's an author, particularly a first time author like me, I my hats off to you. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, like I said, it, it has been phenomenal so far. And but one of the things that strikes me with this is, you know, I don't think that a lot of people immediately connect the idea of manners and professional, you know, career life. And so uh, how did you learn, you know, the importance of manners in the professional world? One of the things that struck me, Ryan, as I was going through my career was who was, for the lack of a better term, who was being successful and who wasn't. And it didn't seem to correlate with their intelligence. It Mm -hmm. didn't seem to, it didn't seem to matter that much that you were, you know, the cream of the crop out of Harvard, or you came out of a state school or a community college in terms of your ability to rise up and be effective in an organization. Now, the one thing I want to say, and I emphasize in the book, you have to, you have to, as I say it in the book, if you're going to be a, a pilot, my brother, who was my collaborator is a pilot, you have to know how to fly the plane, right? My, my brother works for American Airlines and you know, American Airlines didn't hire my brother because he has impeccable manners, which he does. They hired him because he knows how to fly a plane. Right. But it's possible that if he did not have impeccable manners, that he he may not have done very well. And like I mentioned about the astronauts, which are very few examples, by the way, it's hard to get to be an astronaut without being vetted for these other things. But sometimes, you know, we slip through the cracks. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really saw that you know, even in my own experience about how I got hired and why they decided to hire me and the opportunities that were made available to me. And when I started reflecting on that, I thought that, well, at the very least, the fact that I didn't have what I would call bad manners, and you can, we can characterize what that is, uh, I, I felt was helpful. Um, now, I had to really step up my game in terms of my technical skills uh, in certain areas, but uh, what I decided that my best contribution at a place like NASA, since I wasn't an engineer or scientist, is to manage uh, events and programs, and and that's what I ended up doing. Um, so I learned the skill of project management. And I learned the skill of people management, which involves you know human resources. It involves uh, um, finance. It involves budgeting. It involves a lot of those things. So you have to learn those skills, right? Um, so I wanted to I wanted to talk about what I hope is really a foundational skill set that really can apply across all disciplines that I would encourage young people going into college or coming out of college to pay attention to because um, I, I often got you know from students you know well what classes do I have to take in order to mm. get to NASA and I had parents say well what schools should I send my kids to so they can work at NASA. And I, right. I was always struck by the questions. I was like, you know, I'm not sure that I would worry about that too much. What, what I would hmm. really worry about is how are you, how are you showing up in the world hmm. and how are you developing your empathy skills and how are you learning to cultivate relationships and how are you learning how to have people in your life to help you? You know, I'm a big fan of mentorship and, and apprenticeship. I learned from a lot of people just by being in their presence. Um, so I, I just felt that there, there, there's more to having a fulfilling and meaningful career than just checking all the right boxes. I mean, you really do have to, in fact, the second chapter is know thyself. And I know you do a lot of work with the neograms and other tools mm-hmm. like that. I mean, I was a junkie about that stuff when I was growing up in NASA. I mean, I took, you know, fire OBs and Myers-Briggs and DISC and RISC, yeah. you name it. I did it all because I wanted to know what made me tick and what didn't make me tick. And, and because I learned all of that, I was able to develop the skills I needed to know to counteract some of my deficiencies, but also Mm. understand when I was going to get triggered by things because I learned from the test that, you know, I didn't like certain things, so I can expect that. So I would encourage people to do that. Anyway, I I just felt that I, I wanted to address those issues because I've seen so many people, uh, hit a ceiling in their, their, their work where, 
They didn't even understand why they weren't getting hired. They didn't understand why they weren't getting promoted. They didn't understand why they weren't being asked to be on a team. They didn't know why they weren't included in the social activities. Hmm. And I could see a lot of this stuff. And I, you know, in some cases, like, you know, dude, you're a jerk. Who wants to be around you? I mean, you, <laughs> right. you can't say that to anybody, but that's kind of what it was. But they sure. didn't see it. They were blind. Yeah. Well, I, I've got the table of contents in front of me here. Yeah. And I just want to read through these chapter titles. Okay. And um, so people can kind of get an idea. Uh, your titles are incredibly interesting. So I, uh, here we go. Chapter one is Mama's Rules, uh, which yeah. is great. Chapter two, you mentioned Know Thyself. Then the success illusion, pink suits, what elephant in the room, my $2,000 suit, uh, (laughs) authentic presence, am I being interviewed, injustice and manners, who's on your team, pulling your team together, money, brains, and success, giving attention, and then manners in practice. Uh, You you talked about know thyself already. Uh, Let's pick another one here uh, to to just preview for people. Sure. Uh, how about pink suits? Give us a little preview about pink suits and what that means. Sure. So pink suits is a metaphor. It's a metaphor to refer to something that would stand out. In fact, I named my publishing company Pink Suit Press, right? That mm. was where that came from. Um, and I say in the story that, look, you know, I don't envision myself ever buying and wearing a pink suit, uh, but Nowadays, a lot of people wear a pink suit, so maybe it's not a, a great metaphor, and it's okay. It's not a judgment about pink suits. Sure. But what it's, what it's meant to convey is a willingness to try on something like a pink suit just to see what it looks like and feels like before you judge beforehand, ah, I'm not mm. going to do that, right? Mm. So, for example, if I were to ask you, Ryan, I said, look, Ryan, I'm really stuck in a certain area and I'm not sure what to do. And you talk to me and you say, well, Donald, you know, I really think you need to, you know, you need to go, you know, to Portland, Oregon and and run around the state capitol four times and then, you know, (laughs) blow smoke. And I might look at you and like, what (laughs) What are you talking about? (laughs) Well, see, you may know something that I don't know, but that would be a pink suit because I'm like, well, Ordinarily, I would never go to Portland, Oregon and run around the state capitol three times and then go blow smoke somewhere. I mean, I just wouldn't do it. But maybe there's something that you know about me and that experience that Hmm. you feel that I need to do that. So it's, it's an invitation to try on something that may be a little strange. And Hmm. in this particular case, all I'm inviting the reader to do is to try on this notion of manners as a lens through which you look at the world of how you are actually showing up and what it says about you and your experience in the world. I mean, there's a lot of models, right? You know, we do personality types, we do other Mm -hmm. types of things. And this, this is just my this is just my invitation to do it. So I, I use kind of a funny example so that when, I used to do it. I used to do it in in our meetings at NASA. I would literally say to my staff, "I come in. I said, guess what, folks? I got a pink suit for us." And they know exactly what I meant. They meant that I was about ready to throw a curveball at them that is probably going to unnerve many of them. But at least they were prepared mentally, right? Sure. It wasn't like yeah. I just walked in the staff meeting and said, "Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. You know, today we're going to, you know, go do something," and they're going to look at me like, "What is he talking about?" At least if I gave them a preview and said, <laughs> "I have a pink suit for you," then yeah. then I'm like, "Oh, okay. You know, I, I'll let my defenses down. You know, this is just Donald being funny." So that's that's yeah. kind of the pink suit metaphor. So, you know, you, you, I feel like you opened the door to this a little bit. Yeah. What's, what is a pink suit that you have tried on at some point that turned out to fit better than you expected? Uh, one example was when I did a, as part of my senior leadership training, um, we had an opportunity to uh, go to different NASA centers to do different jobs And I took on a detail at our Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas, to work in uh, the Orion uh, uh, project. Orion is the name of the new 
NASA spacecraft. It's what's replacing the space shuttle. Completely different. It's a capsule that sits on top of a rocket. It's not a space plane like the space shuttle was. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do there, but I knew I wanted to work in a space project. You know, I just wanted to work around spacecraft. But when I got there, they said, well, here's what we want you to do. We want you to write the project plan for the Orion spacecraft. And I looked at the guy and I gave him about 15 seconds to come to his senses because I'm like, uh, I'm not an engineer. Last time I studied engineering was my first year of college. We were using slide rules. And, you know, and he, he just looked at me and said, yeah. And I'm like, um, I said, uh, I really appreciate that. But, you know, it's been kind of a while since I've done any engineering. And I'm like terrified thinking, oh, my God, they're going to like, what are you doing here? You're a NASA guy. You're supposed to not to do anything. So that was uh, one example of a pink suit that uh, I had no idea what they meant. And it turned out that, that putting a project plan together uh, was really about organizing 30 or 40 sub plans. And my job was really to get other people to do their parts. I had to synthesize it mm-hmm. and make sure that it made sense. Um, you know, that's one extreme when I was asked to do something to do a job that I really felt initially that I wasn't qualified to do. If somebody were to ask me prior to that, you know, what do you want to do? I would have never said, oh, I want to go to Houston and write. It was the first project plan, by the way. It wasn't, Mm. it had never been written before. I would never ask for that. You know, I had to be asked because someone thought I could do that. Um, One other quick example was there was a time early in my career at Ames when I decided that I was actually going to leave NASA. I was not happy with um, the person I was working for. Uh, and I had um, met a person who worked at Lockheed that I really thought very highly of, and she'd offered me a job. And so I resigned from NASA and I was going to go work for her. And um, the pink suit came when I told my boss the guy I didn't particularly care for. And I tell this in the story about, you know, in about two seconds, he went off to HR to try to replace me because he was terrified. He wasn't going to be able to, you know, backfill for me. And I remember feeling like this is the proverbial, don't let the door hit you in the butt on the way out kind of thing. But the pink suit came when his boss called me into his office and asked me why I was doing this. And and the long and short of it is, and I explain it more in this in the book. He said, "Well, I want you to, I want you to give me, you know, all the things, all the demands you have in order for you to stay." And I said, "Well, I don't have any demands, you know," but it, it threw me for a curve because I I was all ready to leave and go work for this person, and so I go through a, a series of steps of the different pink suits in this process. And the point of my sharing that story was how I behaved in that process. And mm-hmm. I think that's what the lesson is, how I reacted and behaved. Um, when I told the person at Lockheed that basically NASA was countering and I had agreed to reconsider, they countered with money on the table. And I remember distinctly on the phone with the guy from HR and I said, this is not about money. Mm. This is about where I need to be in my career. I said, I appreciate the offer, but I am not going to, that's not going to be a part of my calculus. And it wasn't. Mm. And I I have a clear memory of feeling the most powerful I've ever felt in my early career by, and remember back in the early 90s, you know, the amount of money they were dangling from me was a lot of money. I mean, it was significant, but I felt that I would be completely out of integrity if I allowed this to be a bidding war between Mm. two organizations, because that's not what it was about. Because my mother said, that my manners were going to take me where my brains and money went. So if I had the money, mm. then I was going to be limited in that. So that was really the point of that story. And that was several pink suits. <laughs> yeah. Well, that that goes perfectly into what I wanted to ask next, because yeah. you said part of the subtitle is, yeah, wisdom from mama, right? And yeah. and so you started already to talk about her, but but tell us about mama and what role she played in all of this. Thank you. Uh, well, my mother's name was Muriel Yvonne Gasset James, 
child of the Depression. She was born five months before the Depression in Atlanta, Georgia. So my mother grew up in um, uh, Jim Crow South, uh, you know, as an African-American uh, female, and uh, but um, went to college at Spelman University and then went to Middlebury College in Vermont, where she met my father. My mother uh, was trained as an English teacher and a French teacher. And so English was a very big deal for her. And that's where the whole focus on, you know, proper conventions. And, and I have a lot of stories about mama correcting my <laughs> English. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, my brother has really inherited mama's propensity to do that. And so even to this day, he'll send something back to me and point out a mistake that I made. And I know and he knows he's channeling our mother. My mom was very soft-spoken as a teacher. She never raised her voice. She um, was very uh, focused on her students. Um, I'll never forget, you know, growing up when the demographics of where she taught was primarily Southeast Asian, because this was right after, right during and after the Vietnam War. So the students were coming from Laos and Cambodia. She absolutely insisted on learning what their birth names were and how to pronounce them correctly. Because many mm. students at that time, being sensitive about being in the United States, uh, anglicized their names. You know, they mm -hmm. would give themselves first a Jim or Kevin or Bill. Right. And my mom would say, I have a feeling that's not what your mother called you when you were born. What did she call you? And so she always told us, respect people by knowing what their names are mm. and how to pronounce them correctly. And if you don't know, ask them. And if you're curious about their name, ask them about the etymology of their name and they'll tell you about it. You know, maybe it's a father's name or grandparent or whatever it is. So mom was like that. So she was kind of old school in that way. And uh, she's she's where we learned uh, about the importance of manners. Hmm. I love that. And that's powerful about names. That's um, yeah, that's great. And I know yeah. that, you know, she you've got a chapter called Mama's Rules, but I also know that her rules are kind of woven throughout the book. They as are. Well. Yeah. Yeah, they are. We, we found those after my, after our mother died in uh, August of 2017, my brother and I, we were going through her belongings. And although we heard some of these things verbally, we, we came across a box where she had collected a lot of these sayings and, and oh. these sayings are things that, you know, we know some of them, you know, came from certain people. It's not like she invented them all. But the title of this one particular paper was Muriel's Eight Cardinal Rules of Life. Um, wow. You know, it includes things like make peace with your past so it won't screw up your present. It includes things like uh, um, uh, what others think of you is none of your business, which is one that a lot of my friends really tend to gravitate towards and like, <laughs> wow, that's powerful. You know, it's like, why do you care about what other people think about you? It's none of your business what they think about you, yeah. what my mom used to say. <laughs> and so I, I use mama's rules as part of her wisdom. And I, I uh, bring that into the different stories. Uh, so I really integrate the NASA experiences that I've experienced with together with all of the training I've ever done. And I've done a lot to synthesize this into the manner story. So yeah, yeah. mama was well, something. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like it. You know, one thing that you talk about uh, in the book is situations that are beyond your control, right? Yeah. So, so talk about that and why it's especially important today in the time and culture that we live in. Yeah. So I believe that um, people are going to discover that things are going to happen that, you know, uh, they didn't necessarily create. And you know, Ryan, that there's this whole adage that, you know, the only thing you can be completely responsible for is your reaction and your response to something. If you just take, for example, the world that we're in now with the pandemic and how different people are experiencing it. I mean, I, I live in California, so we have our experiences. Um, and, and, you know, I'm in a, I, you know, I'm retired and my kids are growing out of the house. So I'm not a, a working parent with kids in the house trying to go to school remotely. And I am terrified at the thought of having to do something like that. 
But the fact of the matter is that we're, we're all never dealt the same hands in life. That's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. But we are dealt with the same opportunity to respond to whatever we're dealt with mm-hmm. uh, as we choose. And so we can choose to feel imprisoned. And, um, and, and let me just give you a, 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 a simple story to illustrate this. Um, this past Christmas, for the first time in my life, I'm 63 years old, uh, I did not have any family with me during Christmas ever. Now, my wife and I were to here, we've been together 32 years. But even then, during our whole life, when we were, you know, before our children were born, we were with family members, my brother, mm-hmm. my mother, other family, we always had our rituals growing up dinners at certain people's houses, things that we used to do. Sure. This is the first time that didn't happen. Our daughter um, lives in New York. And we talked about, and actually had a ticket to bring her home. And mm. then the more we thought about it, as case starts going up and all the things that we'd have to do, you know, quarantining and testing and all of this, mm-hmm. we just felt that it wasn't a good idea. And we called mm. her, you know, not sure how she was going to react. And it turns out that intellectually, she was with us. She actually felt, you know, what, you know, she's terrified she's going to kill us by bringing the virus right. home. Right. That said, during that conversation of the conversation, we all ended up crying out of sadness that this is where we are. And then after that, we realized that, you know, we are still alive. We have a house. We, you know, we're, there's so many people. So, you know, I just shudder at the thought thinking about people whose loved ones are in the hospital over the holidays and they can't even talk to them. And they, Mm. um, I'm sorry, it's emotional for me to think about this because I just feel lucky that that's not true for us. And Mm. I reminded my wife and my daughter, and they know this, that there have been times in our life when we've been apart physically for even longer than, not necessarily as long as the pandemic has gone on, but for several months, but, you know, we knew it was going to end. And so, we realize that, you know, our love for each other and our care for each other transcends, you know, our need to have our rituals uh, continue to happen the way they did in the before, that this is the biggest pink suit that we've been presented Mm. on this planet. And we didn't have a choice but to put the pink suit on, but we have a choice for how we were going to relate to it once it was on. Yeah. And so we have yeah. to choose that. And so that's how we're choosing to look at this. And, um, and I say that with a great deal of humility, knowing that as I speak and during the course of even this interview, how many people have died alone? Sure. How many people didn't get a chance to say what they wanted to say to their loved ones? And, and every time I talk to my children, we tell them we love them and they tell us they love us and we mean it. And so yeah. we're privileged. So that's a big pink suit. And I would say this experience that we're going through is, you know, it would be foolish not to acknowledge that that's, that's the world that we're in now. And how do we want to how do we want to relate to that? And, mm. you know, I've done the things that I've done and you've done the things that you've done, but, um, you know, it's, uh, it, mom used to say this too shall pass and it will, oh. but it'll never be the same. We, we will never be the same, Yeah. Uh, but it will pass. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of wisdom in that. And I, I appreciate you sharing the thoughts. Um, you know, just kind of wrapping things up here as far as this uh, podcast goes. What what else are you up to right now? Tell us what you're working on next, and and how people can find you and connect with you uh, if if they are so inclined. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, well, first of all, I, I I do have a website. If someone wants to learn more about me, and um, it's in the process of being. Uh, revamped hopefully by the time this airs we will have finished revamping it when for when the book comes out the book comes out february 2nd uh but basically the url is my full name donald gregory james so donald gregory that's how they can find me okay um i'm 
currently involved with some nonprofit organizations that support uh, underserved students in uh, science and technology. And I'm working with um, a science center in near where I live that's a fairly new science center called the Quest Science Center and, and mm. things that they're doing. Um, I'm pretty much preoccupied with learning how to publish a book and what does it mean <laughs> to get it out there and um, but I'm excited about it. I'm excited about talking about it. I'm excited about learning what other people's experiences are and what, you know, what their manner stories are. And so um, that's, and I'm enjoying being retired. I, I, I didn't, I didn't think I was going to, I thought I would get kind of antsy, but I don't know. I kind of like, you know, not having uh, too big of a schedule, but I, I had a friend of mine before I retired, Ryan, that, that gave me some great advice. He said, Donald, you need three things to have a successful retirement. I said, yeah, what's that? He said, you need to have purpose, you need to have structure, and you need to have a social life. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. So I started thinking about my purpose. And, you know, I really spent some time working on that and talking to some people and the book became a part of the purpose. But in essence, you know, my purpose is about giving. My purpose is mm. about what can I give to people and what can I give to myself? And um, that's why I have one of the chapters is titled Giving Attention, right? Uh, I make a distinction between that and paying attention, right? Because mm. I feel that when you give your attention to somebody, there's love behind it, there's graciousness, there's other things. So I'd like to invite people to think about how we language certain things, you know, around attention. So I talk about giving, giving attention. So, so my purpose is that uh, I don't have to worry too much about my social life. I'm very fortunate that I'm, I'm married to the woman that I am and she's an event <laughs> planner. And so she handles all of that. So I'm, I'm really lucky, but I'm getting better. Uh, I did have to work on structure a little bit. I, I found that I got real spoiled at the end of my career with people that were, you know, around me to support me and to manage calendars. And I had to figure that out and, you know, how not to mess up the, you know, the, the emails and where they go. And so, <laughs> uh, so, so that's kind of a work in progress. But I found that that wisdom, purpose, structure, and social life has served me quite well. And, um, and in that context, I'm enjoying very much, um, uh, you know, the kind of work that I'm doing. Um, uh, I, I get the biggest kick that not kick, that's not a bright word. What I get really passionate about Ryan is seeing transformation of young people as they learn about themselves and where their contribution is in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's, part of what I wanted to accomplish with the book is that I, I say repeatedly, this book is not the be all end all. There's thousands of books that tell you what to do and how to do it. And why is this any different? Well, it may not be. You know, if there's one thing that helps you, that's really wonderful. But it, this, I, I am, a, at, you know, I've synthesized a lot of things that I've learned in my life, including a lot of the readings that I've done from other great authors and, and people, you know, such as yourself. And I'm learning about you and the work you're doing. And I'm probably going to, like I said, I'm going to steal some of it myself <laughs> and incorporate that um, because we're trying to, you know, ultimately advance the human condition, which is what I think everybody's purpose ought to be really, you know, how do we, how do we become better at anything over time? So, so that's what I'm doing. Um, I like to read. I like to walk, and um, uh, so, <laughs> yeah. and I and I'm enjoying this. This is great. It's great to get to meet you, and um, I, I'm just grateful to have this opportunity to talk about this. And I'm excited to see what people think and whether it resonates yeah. with them. And I just hope to do my part to help the discourse, not only in our country with how we interact with each other, but you know, around the globe. You know. Um, just trying to do my part. Sure. Well, I'm sure it will resonate. And if there was ever a time that we needed it, uh, it's probably now. So uh, <laughs> the book is called Manners Will Take You Where Brains and Money Won't. Uh, Wisdom from Mama in 35 Years at NASA. Um, Donald, just again, I I'm so thankful that you would take the time to be on here and chat with me. And I think that, um, you know, people that are listening are definitely going to enjoy it. It's been um, and immensely enjoyable to me. So uh, just once again, I appreciate your time and you being on here today. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. 
Hey, what an incredible conversation uh, with Donald there. He's just a, a wealth of knowledge and experience, and I'm just so grateful that he was able to come on and share about his new book and about just his his story, his journey through different teams and and positions and roles within NASA and uh, and a little bit of wisdom from Mama. So I hope you guys found that uh, half even as interesting uh, as I did. Um, and that you'll go and check out his book. Uh, I've, like I said, on the interview, I have been reading it and it is phenomenal. And so I highly recommend that uh, you can find links to his stuff in the show notes right now. And you can also find links to evergreen, which is my company. So if you are interested in, uh, making your team invincible, right? If you are interested in getting rid of office drama and politics and increasing communication and teamwork and having a team that actually enjoys each other and enjoys their job, that's what we're here to do. So check us out, evergreenteams.com, link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening today to the Invincible Teams podcast. We'd like to challenge you now to go share this episode with a team leader or business owner you know that might like it. And just like every podcast, we appreciate all the subscribes, likes, shares, reviews, and five-star ratings you can give us. And like we always say, we believe that every team should reach their potential and that if we get intentional, our teams can become invincible. See you next time.